Hey sinners, I'm Megan. And I'm Lindsay. And this is Sinners Among Saints. Welcome to episode numero uno, um, the first in what we hope to be many, many more. Um, since we are just starting out, we don't really have anything to attend to right now, so I guess we'll just jump right in. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Arthur Gary Bishop. He um, was born on September 29th, 1952 in Hinkley, Utah. Now, for those of you who are not from Utah... Hinkley is located about two hours south of Salt Lake City. He was the oldest of either six or nine boys. I, in my research, found both in different articles. So the mom forgot how many boys she had. (laughs) One or the other, six or nine. Either way, it's a whole lot of freaking kids. Um, He was raised as a devout Mormon. He was a good student. He was an Eagle Scout. Um, He served an LDS mission to the Philippines. And after returning from that, he graduated from Stevens Henniger College with a degree in accounting. Um, I was actually surprised that Stevens Henniger College was even around in the 60s or 70s. I did not realize, but yeah, me either. Anyway, um, in February of 1978, He was arrested and convicted of embezzling $8,714 from his employer. Big money. Right? Back then, for sure, it was big money. Uh, He ended up pleading guilty and was given a five-year suspended sentence on the agreement that he would pay the money back as restitution. Um, Instead of doing that, he skipped town and it the articles I read said he just refused to surrender to um, his warrant that was put out for him. And I don't know how you just, like, refuse to surrender. And they're just like, okay. But yeah, I mean, doesn't everyone refuse to <laughs> surrender to their warrant? <laughs> but because of his refusal to surrender and pay the money back, the um, Mormon church excommunicated him. So at that time... He moved to Salt Lake City. So that was about October 1978. He changed his name and went by Roger Downs. At this point, he joined the Big Brothers program. And that is where he first, well, probably not first, but that's where he started to um, victimize children. So through the Big Brothers program, he was able to meet lots of different young boys, but he never murdered anybody from the big boys program. That was big of him. (laughs) Right. Um, So his first confirmed victim was Alonzo Clark Daniels. He was born on December 22nd, 1974. He was four years old. Oh my God. Yeah. Alonzo and his mother lived across the hall from Bishop in an apartment complex. 
And on October 16th, 1979, Alonzo was outside his apartment just playing around when he was approached by Bishop, who was able to lure him into his apartment with the promise of candy and toys. Yeah. He immediately attempted to undress and fondle him in his living room, but Alonzo began crying and saying he was going to tell his mom. Oh, that breaks my heart. I know. So sad. So at that time, Bishop panicked, so he hit Alonzo in the head with a hammer that was just hanging around, and that when that did not stop Alonzo from crying, he took him into the bathroom and drowned him in the tub. He then stuffed Alonzo's body into a cardboard box and carried it to his car, right past Alonzo's mom as she was pacing the courtyard, frantically calling for her son. Oh my God, are you kidding me? No. Right past her. Um, that evening, he drove Alonzo's body out to Cedar Fort, which is about 41 miles from Salt Lake City, and buried his body. Police went door-to-door questioning residents, and when they met with Bishop, a.k.a. Roger Downs, um, the questioning was very routine, and he stated he had no knowledge of the boy's whereabouts. By late afternoon, Salt Lake County's search and rescue team had joined hundreds of civilians who were searching for Alonzo, including students and faculty of the University of Utah and members of the Teamsters Union. Uh, He was last seen wearing a cream-colored shirt with the words chocolate, lime, and vanilla printed on it. So, as you'll kind of see, he takes time in between each one of his victims. It's not like one right after the other. So, after his first murder, he began to adopt puppies and kill them. What a dick. Right? In order to, like, quench his thirst for killing. He would strangle them, drown them, hit them over the head. Um, And he said that he liked to do that because the puppies would make the same sound that Alonzo did before he died. Uh, Right? That's so gross. (laughs) Um, So the next victim was 11-year-old Claude Kimley Peterson, who went by Kim. He was born on September 11th, 1969, and he met Bishop at a skating rink. Um, they met on November 8th, 1980, where they talked about skates, and Kim had mentioned he was looking to sell his to buy new ones. Now, there was a couple articles that said that they actually met at a bowling alley, but either way, somehow they met, they talked about skates. Um, Kim stated he wanted to sell his, and Bishop said he would buy his skates from him. So they made plans the next day to complete the sale. Um, So he left his house the next day, November 9th, 1980, and went to Bishop's apartment, and he was never seen again. So there's a couple conflicting articles. But Kim's mom said that he got a phone call and said he was going to go to the corner store. And that was the last that she had seen him. Um, And I think 
I think the one that's probably a little bit more true is um, after getting to Bishop's apartment, he um, told him that he wasn't able to sell his skates. His mom didn't want him to. And so then Bishop was like, well, do you want to go rabbit hunting? What? Yeah. <laughs> and he had stated in one of um, one of the things I read that he was like, what kid doesn't love rabbit hunting? Yeah, so, what kid doesn't? So, I used to go rabbit hunting all the time. Apparently in 1980, rabbit hunting was like the big thing. So they went rabbit hunting. Well, it probably was in Hinkley. Like, I guess let's so. be honest. Yeah, probably. There's not a whole lot to do in Hinkley. No. Utah. Even today. Yeah. In 2022. That's true. So they drove out to the West Desert um, by Utah Lake and hunted for rabbits. Okay, wait. So he never checked in with his mom. He just said, I'm going to the corner store when really he was going to go sell his skates to some random dude. Yeah. And then when he decided not to sell his skates, he just thought it would be okay to go hunting, but never checked in with his mom. Yeah, I mean, I think back then it wasn't, you know, kids like left and were gone all day. Then they just came back at night and that was just like how it was. Like, yeah, when the streetlights came on. on. (laughs) Right. Yeah. They just ran home. So um, after they were rabbit hunting, uh, Bishop. So did they actually go rabbit hunting then? Yeah. So they went out to the desert and they, they did their rabbit hunting. And then Bishop asked Kim about posing for some photos. And he, like, had this whole story about how he was being blackmailed and he, whatever, just apparently needed these photos. And so um, it took a little bit of convincing, but eventually Kim agreed. And he said he would do it only if he could take photos of Bishop first. So after taking pictures of Bishop, because he allowed him to, um, he took pictures of Kim and then he panicked. Because he knew that Kim was smart and it scared him. And he thought that the kid might turn around and blackmail him now that he has these photos of him. So he shot him twice and stashed his body in some bushes, drove to American Fork, bought a shovel, and then returned and buried Kim next to Alonzo at Cedar Fort. So these pictures, were they just like... Normal pictures? Normal nude pictures. Oh, yeah, because nude (laughs) pictures are totally normal. So did he take pictures? They both took nude pictures of each other? That's what I got from there was that Kim was like, well, sure, but I want to take, like, nude pictures of you. like." And they did this right next to where the other body was buried. Um, No, so they were out by Utah Lake. And then the bodies were buried in Cedar Fort, which I think were, like, kind of, uh, they were hunting, like, 41 miles away from Salt Lake City. Okay. okay. And Cedar Fort's, like, kind of the other way. So, um, when Kim did not return home for dinner, that's when the police were contacted. Um, they went back to the skating rink slash bowling alley where several witnesses remembered seeing a young boy matching Kim's description, talking to a man between 25 and 35 with a round face, about 200 pounds, and wearing glasses. Um, Once again, Bishop was questioned, but nothing led them to believe that he had anything to do with Kim's disappearance. 
So once again, just kind of. I mean, wouldn't you think it was strange that two unrelated kids go missing and he is questioned in both disappearances? You would think. You, I mean, you really, like, you would think that, like, after the first one and then, but you have to remember, too, this was a year later. So. But the same police department. Yeah, I'm guessing the same police department, for sure. Um, so then the next victim was Daniel Reed Davis, born March 20th, 1977. He was also four years old. He lived with his grandparents, um, and he was, by all accounts, like a timid, sweet little boy who just, like, loved his grandpa. Okay, so I'm going to throw in a little side note here, but it'll make sense in just a second. So, through the Big Brothers program, Bishop had befriended a young boy named Jeff. Now, in everything I read about Jeff, the name was always in quotations, so I'm not really sure that that's actually his name, (laughs) but that's what they call him, so Jeff, air quotes. Um, He said Jeff was like a son to him, um, but eventually he started sexually abusing him and taking nude pictures and videos of him. Right, yeah. So on October 20th, 1981, Jeff and some of his friends had been watching movies at Bishop's house um, near 39th South and State Street when they decided to go to a nearby arcade. So Bishop, who was living under the name of Lynn Jones at this time, decided to walk over to Smith's Marketplace about a block away to buy some treats for a party that he was apparently, I'm sure, having with young boys later that day. Gross. (laughs) Yeah. So that's where he spotted poor little Danny, who had wandered away from his grandfather while they were shopping. Bishop approached Danny and asked him if he wanted, like, toys or candy. There were some accounts that said um, Danny was looking at, like, a gumball machine. And that's where Bishop uh, first confronted him to see if he wanted, like, candy. At first, Danny refused, and so Bishop just left the store. But then he noticed that Danny had, in fact, followed him. But he was so far behind him, he said, that nobody would have put the two of them together. So he continued walking and allowed Danny to kind of walk behind him until they got a little bit farther down where no one was really paying attention and then he picked him up and carried him to his apartment now bishop said he only intended like this makes it any better but he only intended on molesting him and then returning him to the parking lot of the grocery store okay wait 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 so (laughs) when he goes back to his house are jeff and the other boys still there no so they're still at the arcade okay so no one's there He's just doing a, he's just taking a quick detour of his day. To molest a four-year-old. Yes. So at some point, for whatever reason, Bishop becomes angry with Danny and strangles him to death. Then Bishop stuffs Danny's body into a double plastic garbage bag, ties it off, and leaves it sitting in the corner of his kitchen in his apartment. So... A little later, Jeff and his friends return 
continue watching movies, not realizing that there is the body <gasps> of four-year-old Danny just chilling in the kitchen. Like, oh, my yeah, hell. Like, feet away from them. So um, that night, Bishop and Jeff and his friends sit on the front porch and watch as police and civilians are searching for Danny. So eventually that night, Bishop places Danny's body in the back of his car and takes him to Cedar Fort and buries him next to the other two victims. So Danny's case was the first to involve the FBI. They distributed flyers. People were questioned. um, They searched lakes. They searched the mountains, but nothing was ever found. Um, Family and local businesses got together and offered a cash reward of $20,000 for any information. But obviously, like, that was never claimed. But oddly enough, guess who was questioned again? Bishop. For a third time. For a third time. And this was a different department at that point because he had moved to Salt Lake. Uh, He'd been in Salt Lake for all three of them. So... I don't know exactly. I mean, he'd moved around to different houses, so I don't know if it was... I don't know how the police departments were set up then. We have a lot of different departments now, but I don't know if it was just one big one or each little town kind of had their own. But yeah, he was questioned again, and once again, no connection was made. So um, the next victim was number four, um, his name was Troy Edward Ward, and he was six years old. He was born on June 22nd, 1977, and on his sixth birthday, his mom had decided to run to the store to buy some ice cream for his birthday party, and he was outside. There was a few different accounts I read on this one, so one of them stated that he was outside waiting for a friend of the family that was like a neighbor who promised to give him a motorcycle ride for his birthday. Um, Another account stated that his mom noticed there was a man in a car outside when she was leaving and she stopped and talked to him. He said he was waiting for a friend. She didn't think anything of it and like continued on her way. Another account was from Bishop himself, but I mean, you never know who was telling the truth. He, He claims that he was never out looking for victims, that every single time it was just like complete like happenstance that he would pick up these kids. Just like out for a stroll, saw that one particular kid and something just clicked. Like, that's my next victim. Yeah, pretty much. So on that day, he said he was trying to remember the location of an artisan well so he could fill water bottles. And he said he didn't even notice Troy until he was talking to him. So, like, he's randomly driving around, like, the streets and then just pulls over and then some little boy comes up to his car and starts talking to him. And that's how. And then, like, halfway through the conversation, you suddenly notice him? Right, yeah. Okay. Um, and so he said he asked Troy if he knew where the well was. And Troy said it was at Liberty Park. And Bishop asked him if he would, like, if he could show him. And so Troy just got in his car. And it was on his sixth birthday. On his birthday. While his mom went to get him ice cream. Yeah. 
And there was um, one account that I read when he was talking about, like, once he'd been caught, that he was like, if you want to know if I really did that, um, he was wearing cowboy boots. And he was because he had gotten them for his birthday. And his mom had given to him, given them to given them to him early because he was super excited for his cowboy boots. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So terrible. So um, they got in the car. Troy's mom said that upon returning, that Troy was just gone. Um, At that point, he had been taken back to Bishop's apartment because Bishop had said something along the lines like, oh, thanks for, like, helping me. Would you like to come to my house and have some ice cream? And so he did. He um, assaulted Troy, bludgeoned him, and then drowned him in the tub. And, I mean, honestly, like, my question, not that any of it is okay, but, like, why does he have to bludgeon a six-year-old and then drown him? And then drown him, yeah. Like, what, like, like you can't... Just pick one. Yeah, like... How how are you not completing it, or or do you like like I don't know if he like liked to just do it. To, I don't know. I'm sure he liked it. <sighs> so he he actually claims he didn't love the killing part, but well then stop doing it. <laughs> you would think, you would think, but like, you know I don't love to kill little boys, but I'm gonna. <laughs> but like, it just every happens. Year, you know, it just happens. <laughs> um, I don't but, know. The difference with this one was um, he took Troy's body to Big Cottonwood Creek and buried him there. And there's not any, like, anything that states as to, like, why he decided to switch locations or if he just was like, well, that one spot's filling up, so I'm going to go somewhere else. I have no idea. If it was closer, I'm not really sure. Okay, so now we're going to get to the last victim of Arthur Gary Bishop. His last victim was 14-year-old Graham Gibson Cunningham. Now, Graham was friends with Jeff and had frequented Bishop's house in the past. Jeff and Graham had been um, planning a camping trip to California with Bishop as the chaperone. And at this point, like, Jeff referred to Bishop as his stepdad. So, I think Graham's, like, parents... um, believe that that's who he was going with. He was going with his friend and his friend's stepdad. They were going to California. And at some point on July 14th, 1983, just days before they were set to leave, Bishop called Graham. Now, Bishop states that he asked Graham if he wanted to make some quick money. And he agreed. He told Graham from what I understand that there was like, he never really said drugs, but it was like, hey, I just need you to go pick something up and deliver it somewhere else and you'll get, you know, $100. And so Graham being 14 is like, sweet, totally do that. (laughs) Even Um, if it was drugs, he might have been in. Right, yeah. I mean, at 14 and $100 in 1983 was, you know. That's a lot. A lot of money. So he eventually got to Bishop's house and... When he got there, Bishop was able to kind of convince Graham to take nude pictures. How does this guy convince all of these boys to just take nude pictures? Um, I mean, essentially it was for money. Like he said it was real easy to get kids to do this stuff for money 
or candy or toys like for the younger ones but these like ones so that were teenagers sad. yeah yeah just with the promise of money and they were all of them from what bishop says like didn't just jump on the idea they weren't all like yeah let's do it it took some convincing but eventually he was able to like convince them to take nude pictures well and this kid especially kind of knew him yeah more yeah so maybe felt a little bit more safe with them yeah which makes it almost even worse to me oh yeah for sure and i listened to um a show on id called killer trials and it had Graham's mom on there and they were from like Scotland I think she had the cutest accent and she just you know she was just really surprised obviously at like this friend and friend's dad that she thought you know she just trusted him and back then I think parents were a lot more trusting especially of someone's parents than maybe people are today yeah of course so um, he so he got him down into the basement and was able to get pictures and then like the others he bludgeoned him and then drowned him and I I mean I'm not really sure how you drown a 14 year old so he had to have been like pretty much unconscious yeah or something almost, before almost that dead. yeah because like a 14 year old I would you know I mean they're strong yeah and it can probably overtake you especially trying to fight for their lives. So he also took Graham's body to Big Cottonwood Creek and buried him near Troy. Then he went on his camping trip. He, him and Jeff went to California. They did their whole like thing. Like he didn't just kill his yeah. best friend. Yeah. And yeah, they did their camping trip and it was upon returning home that Bishop was brought in for routine questioning again. So at this time, he was still going by an alias, either Roger Downs or Lynn Jones, because it was both. He was kind of using both. Um, And as they were questioning him, they decided to start checking into his background a little bit more, because I think at this point, they started realizing that all of these kids that had gone missing, somehow he happened to live nearby them. So, as well as living nearby all of these missing children, they started to uncover um, lots of things about him. They dis- they discovered that he had an unnatural fondness of the neighborhood kids. Um, they also found that he was wanted under another alias, Lynn Jones, for, once again, embezzling $10,000 from that employer and stealing his personnel file before disappearing. <laughs> he stole his own personnel file yeah yeah like i don't i don't so know like what... i was never here <laughs> yeah i don't know just forget i worked here and embezzled ten thousand yeah like if you take you. the file i was never here okay i mean in nursing they say if you don't chart it it didn't it's happen true. so it's true I mean, yeah it, it kind of makes sense yeah so um so they continued their investigation on him and it showed that he had there was many other cases cases of child molestation over the years and that parents knew about it, but never came forward. What? Yeah. So, and it didn't say who, but I'm assuming it's children from the Big Brothers program. And it said parents, like, knew, but no one ever came forward. Okay. 
So I kind of forgot about the whole Big Brothers program, and I was just thinking that he hadn't done anything to these kids. But that makes him, like, even higher up on the piece of shit list for me. Oh, yeah. Because you join this program, you prey on these young kids who have nothing and nobody. Yeah. They're just looking for somebody to look up to, to spend time with them. And then he takes these vulnerable kids Uh and molests them. Yeah, ones that most, you know, most, I'm sure, don't have a dad. So they're looking at you as their father and... And then you victimize them. So. And then people knew about it. And yeah. And then and then forward. parents knew about it. And like, F you people. Yeah. Whoever you are, F you. Yeah. I don't know who, like, who does that. You know, like, oh, my child was being touched by a grown man. Oh, well. Like, moving on. Okay. Like, I don't, yeah, I I honestly, like, I don't understand that. And it sounds like it was several parents. So, I don't know (laughs) what group of people this was, but, yeah. So. um, And maybe it was parents who just thought, like, the Big Brother program was such a great program for so many people that maybe they just didn't believe their kids. Yeah, and that I mean you see that kind of a lot where yeah. kids tell their parents their parents are like no, they that person wouldn't do that, which is sad. I mean, it is it's sad. Super sad. So, I don't know. Um but the detective that was on the case was Detective Don Bell, and he's the one who questioned Bishop and was able to receive a confession from him. Um during questioning he was asking Bishop all sorts of questions and Bishop was kind of dancing around him. And finally he was just like, Hey, I know who you are. I know you're Arthur Gary Bishop. And, um, he asked him like, if he knew who Graham was because the, they thought he might be hurt. And that's when Bishop replied, no, he's not hurt. He's dead. And when he just came right out and said it. Yeah, they said it was, like, super easy, and they said, well, how do you know he's dead? And he said, because I killed him. Wow. Yeah. And after that, Detective Dunbell said it took about 52 minutes for Bishop to detail the rest of the murders. Oh, only 52 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, 52 minutes. Um, Bishop stated that he was glad he was, had finally been caught because if not, quote, I'd do it again. He also had admitted to some molestation after death. Oh. And it said at some points he giggled, and at other points he would mimic the boy's final words in a high falsetto voice. What? Yeah. Yeah, so he's, you know. This guy's a real <laughs> giant piece, piece of shit. Right? Yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Which, which, and that goes to show that he has absolutely zero remorse for what he did. Because, first of all, not only did he keep doing it, but then you're going to mock your victims Mm -hmm. in a high falsetto voice. Yeah. Which you'll find out, like, as as this kind of goes on through trial and and all that stuff, just how interesting it is. Um, Because, yeah, he's obviously just a giant piece of shit, and he's not, like, remorseful for anything he's done. I mean, at all. So he confessed. He pretty much told them, like, everything. Um, And so they obviously charged him, and it was time to go to trial. 
So Bishop's defense team tried to say that the jury was biased against him and that his confession should not be admissible in court because he was never given a chance to invoke his right to silence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, okay. <laughs> the judge pretty much felt the same way and rejected um, their motion or whatever you call it. And so he was, he was set to go to trial. So he was set to go to trial on February 27th in 1984. And a little side note I want to throw in here. At that same time, Gary or Arthur, Gary Bishop's younger brother, Douglas Bishop, who was born on April 26, 1960, was also in the middle of legal battles for child molestation. What? Yeah. So he had four felony counts, uh, one for forcible sodomy and three for sodomy on a child. Do we know if either of the brothers or any of the brothers were sexually assaulted when they were younger? Like, do we have any background on him? So all I could find was that, like, at one point, Bishop denies claims that he had been, that there had been any abuse in his house. But somehow two out of the six to nine boys, right. however many, yeah, were, were both in legal battles for molestation. Yeah. The other one just didn't murder the boys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, super, super interesting. I'm not really sure, like, how I feel about that. Um, so in reading about his brother, there was a couple of forensic mental health professionals that testified during Douglas Bishop's trial. Um, they stated that the defendant suffered from chronic pedophilia, which at that time, and I'm not sure if it still is, but at that time it was classified as a psychosexual behavioral disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Both considered him mentally ill, but able to stand trial and understood the nature of his acts. They also testified that he posed a threat to others, especially young boys. Uh, yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah, obviously. Um, in an appeal, Mr. Douglas Bishop was challenging the constitutionality of Section 16-5-403.1, which fixes the maximum prison sentence at life and the minimum sentence at either 5, 10, or 15 without the possibility of parole until the minimum sentence is imposed. The, or Sorry, the minimum sentence imposed is served. So, <laughs> I, I just can't even, like, I can't even fathom, like, being a lawyer and being like, yeah, we should totally do this. So, he claimed that it was unconstitutional for lots of reasons, but the main one that, like, really got me was that he said it violates the cruel and unusual punishment provision of the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution and Article 1, Section 9 of the Utah State Constitution because a life sentence with a mandatory minimum five-year prison term is unconstitutionally disproportionate to the crime of sodomy upon a child. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to this. Like... You literally sodomize little boys and you think five years is unconstitutional and too long. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Yeah. (laughs) 
and and that he hadn't been afforded adequate psychiatric care. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, and the lawyer argued this. Like, what is yeah, your like argument you, to say that it was unconstitutionally long? Yeah, yeah. Five I mean, years. like you effed that boy up forever, forever. Like psychologically, he's probably messed up forever, forever. Yeah, and and may unfortunately abuse other children when he becomes yeah older. Yeah, unfortunately, it's like this cycle. Yeah, and for <laughs> for them to waste time, like court time, like people just in general, like I feel like it's a waste of time, and I feel like. And, you know, I'm sorry if this offends anybody, but people who are pedophiles are the biggest wastes of space. They, I mean, obviously they're, they prey on children because adults would beat the shit out of them, male or female. Like, they're the weaseliest people to, like, walk the earth. I just, I really, I can't, I can't even handle. So... Um, eventually, Mr. Douglas Bishop had to be moved. He was sentenced and was sent to prison. He was at a Utah State prison, but he had to be moved because he kept getting picked on. Oh. Right. People kept beating him up and, like, no one liked him. So, eventually, they moved him to the Rich County Jail. And this was in February of 1988. While he was there, he escaped and stole a car, but was quickly caught. Good. <laughs> and was arrested and charged with escape, which was a second-degree felony, um, injuring a jail facility. Because from what, what I read, there was, like, a garage door that he, like, drove through. Injuring a jail facility. facility. Yeah, injuring. Okay. Like, not vandalism. <laughs> <laughs> injuring a jail facility, which is a third-degree felony. And then theft of a motor vehicle, which was a second-degree felony. I tried to see, like, how long he'd actually spent in prison, and the only thing I could find was there was one article in 1992 where he was saying that he hoped he got out of prison soon. But I'm not really sure. I couldn't ever find, like, his release date. But he is on the sex offender registry, and you can look him up and see his old weaselly face now. So there is that. Okay, so he's still alive and kicking. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. Yep, yeah, you yep, hear this podcast, F you. <laughs> right? Yeah, and I think, if I remember Douglas. right, he's in West Valley. <laughs> so. F you, Douglas from West Valley. <laughs> yeah. You pedophilic piece of shit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, don't let your kids hang out with him. Um. So, okay, so back to Arthur Gary Bishop, who was brought to trial in February of 1984. And, of course, just like everybody, I swear, everyone who is like a rapist or a murderer, they try to blame it blame it on an addiction to pornography. Um, he says he had an addiction to child pornography, and he said that's what molded his violent sexual fantasies and eventually drove him to act them out. He admitted to luring boy, young boys to his home with promises of candy, ice cream, toys, and money. And he said, I quote, when I get around little kids, I start shaking. Like, yeah, he gets, like, that excited that he just, I mean. Like one of those little dogs that, like, 
get so excited and then they pee all over themselves yeah. when you come home. I mean, I, you know, I really love my boyfriend and I think he's a beautiful human. But like, that's not the reaction I have when I see him is to no, like. <laughs> like, I'm going to go into convulsions when I see you because I'm so excited. Right? Yeah. So creepy. It just is so creepy. Ew. So during the trial, Bishop's older. Okay, now, so this is Bishop's older brother, right? But stuff I read kept saying he was the oldest of six or nine kids. So I have no idea. Kids there were, so <laughs> yeah. So he was somewhere in the mix. Conflicting stories. He potentially has an older brother. Um, but his name was Craig, and Craig testified that his brother was the most dependable of all nine Bishop children. But he also said that his family knew Bishop had taken nude pictures of his nephew. And that they had urged him to get psychiatric help and believed he was doing so. I mean, I don't want to come out the whole family, (laughs) but if that dude is the most reliable kid in your family, (laughs) your genes are effed. Right? Yeah. He's the most dependable. (laughs) And I I mean, like, first of all, going back to even his career, all he did was embezzle money. Right? So like, what is he reliable for? dependable for yeah yeah okay. and shauna cunningham who is grand graham cunningham's mother said that during the trial at one point when bishop was in the courtroom he turned around and saw her and smiled and waved like they were friends like oh my god like hi what yeah she was oh, like i would have come out of my right? seat and strangled oh him. yeah yeah you wonder why like parents shoot people like you know, yeah. in courtrooms or attack people like that kind of shit is and that like you're not remorseful. No. Like how how are you remorseful if you see the victim's mother and you like smile and wave like you guys are BFFs? Like, oh hey. Hey. I murdered your child. What? Yeah. So he's just I don't even know. So the trial lasted for three weeks, and on March 19th, 1984, he was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, five counts of aggravated kidnapping, and one count of sexual abuse. Now, the last charge stemmed from when police brought Jeff in for questioning. He kept referring to Bishop as dad and saying that he loved him. Okay, so did you find anywhere, like, did he ever date jeff's mom no or it was just because they hung out a lot so he just considered him like a father figure yeah oh that's really yeah sad. and so they knew that bishop was not in fact jeff's father and said that like just the way he talked about him was like super creepy and so the police asked him just came out and were like how long has he been molesting you and jeff replied with all of my life oh my gosh yeah so, so he's just been grooming him from yeah Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So once he was caught, then he just became this like poetic master and began writing like these letters. So I have a few letters throughout here um, that I'm going to read because they're just. Yeah. So after his conviction, he wrote this letter. Um, I quote, I am a homosexual pedophile convicted of murder. And pornography was a determining factor in my downfall. Somehow, I became sexually attracted to young boys, and I would fantasize about them naked. Certain bookstores offered sex education, 
photographic or art books which occasionally contain pictures of nude boys. I purchase such books and use them to enhance my masturbatory fantasies. Finding and procuring sexually arousing materials became an obsession. For me, seeing adult pornography was lighting a fuse on a stick of dynamite. I became stimulated and had to gratify my urges or explode. All boys became mere objects. My conscience was desensitized and my sexual appetite entirely controlled my actions. I mean, so. that really kind of sums it up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really does. And I was I was curious because when I was first reading it and he was saying that he was into this child pornography and I was like, where did you... <laughs> Where do you get child pornography in the 80s when you don't have, like, the internet? You know what I mean? Like, it's not like you could go to a store and buy, like, child pornography. Like, I don't think that was a thing. And so I was like, where was he getting this? But I think he, whatever this stuff was, like, sex education and stuff, I don't think it was, like, underage boys. It just was probably young-looking men. And And then he started making his own because he would just take these nude pictures. Yeah. And unfortunately, you can probably get child porn anywhere at any time like there was just always this black market yeah for it. that's true that's true and he does state at one point that like you know in between killings and stuff he would use like these nude pictures and videos that he had to kind of quell his his urges so um so on march 27th 1984 arthur gary bishop was sentenced to death in addition to the death penalty, Judge J.E. Banks sentenced Bishop to five consecutive life sentences. Judge Banks is quoted saying, it being the thinking of the court that you should never get out of prison in the event you are not executed. So <laughs> he was like, just in case somehow you're never executed, you have five consecutive life sentences so you can never, ever, Good. ever. So you can out. never <laughs> hurt another child. Yeah. Ever. Never, ever. So you'll be the one getting sodomized in prison (laughs) forever. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So during sentencing, Bishop's mother, Carol Bishop, tried to convince a jury to give her son a life sentence instead of death. She testified he was an honor student, an Eagle Scout, and a return missionary. She said she never suspected he had sexual problems until his arrest. Which I find weird because Brother Greg stated that the family knew he was taking pictures of his nephew naked. Yeah. So. I mean, as a mom, I don't think I could ever admit. Yeah, it would be hard. Like, that would be so hard as a mom. I I just can't even imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine supporting your child through a trial like this. Yeah. And I I can see how she may have known about it, but just, like, wanted to shut that out yeah. like that's not really what was happening yeah he was an eagle scout and a return missionary for and, sure you like hold on to the good uh, parts yeah. of them that you and, know uh, yeah. and he's so dependable <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um the most dependable <laughs> right yeah out of all those children so judge banks asked bishop if he had anything to say at sentencing and he stated that he wanted to apologize and he said, I quote, I need to tell the families of the, those five boys that I am sorry. I know they have suffered anger and grief for what I have done. I hope that after I am not around, the hate can be removed from their hearts. I hope the healing process can begin. I hope they can find relief from their suffering. I hope that someday they may forgive me for what I have done. He also said, by accepting my execution, I do not consider myself a courageous hero or a noble martyr. 
or that I am giving up or that I am going out in a blaze of glory as some have suggested. I am merely accepting my just punishment as my conscience dictates I must. Though perhaps too little too late, I am doing the right thing now. Okay. <laughs> like, no, you, you're not doing the right thing. You got caught. Yeah. It's not like you came forward and said, I'm going to turn myself in. Yeah. You got caught. Yeah. It's so easy for people to be remorseful once they've been caught. Um, and they've been sentenced to die. Yeah. Yep. All the feelings come out then. <laughs> yeah. Um, in his final statement, he squelched rumors that he was sexually abused himself or that he was responsible for any other murders. Because there was a little girl that went missing in Sunset, and she was, I want to say, four um, around the time. But it was a very different, like, scenario, and her body was found where, like, they didn't they didn't find these bodies of these boys until he confessed and then took them to where they were all buried. So, um, he also wrote another letter where he prayed for his fellow man. And he says, I leave this life with no ill feelings toward anyone. And I pray that the peace of God may rest upon each and every one of you. I know of God's love, patience, and compassion, and have found comfort in that knowledge. When I kneel before Christ in the next life, having a perfect recollection of all my guilt, with a broken heart, I will humbly plead, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on my soul. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no, you don't get mercy, Gary. Yeah. Because, like, God's not going to forgive you for sodomizing and killing little boys. Right? Like, no one cares how sorry you are now. Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is an unforgivable thing. Right? It's an unforgivable curse. And I don't need your prayers. So yeah. go yeah, please, yourself. Yeah, please don't. Yeah, please don't do pray, not for, pray me. for me. I do not want your prayers. <laughs> no. Take no. them back. Thank you. <laughs> so soon after sentencing, while sitting on death row, he spent his time rediscovering the religion of his youth. He stated, I quote, with great sadness and remorse, I realized that I allowed myself to be misled by Satan. Yeah. Yeah, you did. Yeah. You just realized that? And now I hope he sodomizes oh, you <laughs> through all of eternity and you burn in hell with them right? forever. <laughs> forever. Gary. Yeah, I, I hope that you're in hell with Satan and getting sodomized <laughs> over and over and over. Like that's your hell loop. And just so everyone else, I do listen to Morbid, but they said that they hoped one of the people they talked about had butthole spiders. And that was the best thing I've ever heard. So this goes out to them, and I hope that he has butthole spiders now as well. So many, so many butthole <laughs> so spiders. Because that would be terrible. <laughs> While you're getting sodomized, like butthole spiders are just crawling in yeah. there as well. Yep. So um, let's see. So a psychologist interviewed Bishop before sentencing, and he stated that there was only one time he thought Bishop might be showing some remorse. And Bishop had said, Danny Davis, what a waste. The psychologist said that he thought Bishop was going to say something like, you know, poor boy. Like, I, you know, can't believe like he was so young. But no. He then said, I didn't get any sexual satisfaction out of him. Because <gasps> Danny was the only one that he did not get to molest. Oh. 
So yeah. So that's how remorseful he is. Like I I just I like can't even with him like at all. No. Um so like lawyers do, they Bishop's lawyers pursued their petition for a new trial, but Utah state but Utah's Supreme Court rejected that bid on February 3rd, 1988. Um, after that, Bishop gave up hope and resigned himself to death. So on February 29th, 1988, he filed a motion to dismiss his lawyers and replace them with counsel willing to abandon further appeals. Which, I mean, I guess, like, it's one good thing he was able to do. Um, so they held a secondary competency trial to declare... Um, that he knew what he was doing. And on May 2nd, 1988, the Utah Supreme Court lifted his indefinite stay of execution and ordered an execution date to be set. Um, so, I do want to read a, um, a thing about one of the friends of the victim. Her name was Kathy Luck, and she became acquainted with Troy Ward, when he was just two years old through the Santa's helper program. She and her family felt deep affection for Troy and his mother and wanted to help them out of the poverty that they were experiencing. Uh, Kathy would make clothes for Troy and in turn, he would come and spend time with the Luck family. Kathy began writing a book after the murders um, and she wanted to do it through the eyes of the victims, but she decided she needed more. So she began writing to Bishop asking to speak with him. And he wrote back at first saying no, but he kept in contact with her. So after a while, she was able to build up enough confidence in him. And then at that time, he asked her to come and visit him in prison. So although Kathy states she never lost focus of what he had done, she grew compassion for him. She claimed he was a paradox. So she said there was Arthur Gary Bishop, the monster, and Arthur Gary Bishop, a gentle, repentant man. Kathy stated at times he was sorry for what he had done, and at other times he would try to feel, but didn't know how, but he desperately wanted that quality. Um, prior to execution, Bishop wrote the Utah Supreme Court saying, if there is any redemptive value at all yet to be gained through my execution, then I am ready and anxious to die. Um, he spent the last years of his life studying LDS doctrine, seeking spiritual hope. Um, and here's another letter that he wrote. I have seen peace come over, no, sorry, this is from Kathy. This is what she wrote. I have seen peace come over him. I have never seen before. He believes God approves of his decision to die. He has a fear of being punished in the life hereafter. <clears throat> but he believes only God can judge the intent of his heart. And maybe he never had the light and knowledge required to be held accountable to the higher law. So... I mean, I don't want to come out of Kathy, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Yeah, I mean, shut. everyone, I guess, kind of, you know, and I'm sure she grieved. She, you know, had known him since he was two, and I'm sure she had, you know, love for him. And, and so, you know, just, yeah, everyone has to kind of get through stuff on their own. So, no judgment there, but, 
you know, it is, it is interesting. And I think when you get to this part of your life and you're on death row and you're waiting to die, it's real easy to become super repentant and sorry. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> yeah, because that, that's all you have to do is think about your mortality yeah, and like what is going to happen to your soul after it leaves your body. Well, and he's in prison now, so there's no temptation either. So it's easy to like put that behind you and like, you know, that was the past me because now like there, you're, you have no temptation. And be focused. But yeah. At the same time, like, even people who don't murder people, but do other stuff where they're uh-huh. like, oh, I'm still a piece of crap in my life, but I'm going to repent and everything's going to be better. Like, you can't just continue to do stuff over and over and <laughs> yeah. over and over. That doesn't make it okay. Yeah. It's like I tell my kids, when you say you're sorry, that means you're not going to do it again. Yeah. Like, you have to mean it. It has to come from somewhere. Yeah pure yeah and i don't think he has anything pure in him no so um three days after they decided to lift his um indefinite stay of execution he appeared in court to once again read another brief handwritten statement um and this was quoted by associate press reporter robert mims and it says in reflecting back on my life i remember a lot of good things but these are overshadowed by the things I have done. I wish I could make restitution somehow, but I don't see how I can. I wish I could go back and change what happened or that by giving my life, these five innocent lives could be restored. Again, I say that I am truly sorry for all the anguish. The judge was highly unmoved and signed the official death warrant and scheduled Bishop's execution for June 10th, 1988, which was your birthday. Yes. Not, well, not the <laughs> well, same not year, true. but... But yes, it was your, yeah. It was like a happy birthday to me. (laughs) This piece of crap finally died. Um, Al Carlisle, who was the prison psychologist, told reporters that Bishop seemed to be a new man. In the four years he was in prison, he read the Book of Mormon from cover to cover ten times. He would use TV headphones to shield himself from the profanity of fellow inmates. But still, Bishop told Carlisle, that he feared his old impulses would come back if he were someday freed. So, once again, he's super sorry, but, like, he'd totally do it again. Yeah, yeah. That means actually no remorse. <laughs> yeah. Like, for me, like, good on you for trying to get your stuff in order before yeah. you die, but my God wouldn't believe anything that you said to him right now. So. Right, Yeah. I, I just have, I have faith in a higher power that you're rotting in hell right now, <laughs> yeah. and there's no forgiveness for you. Yeah. So, he met with his parents one last time on June 8th, 1988. He spent his last hours in fasting, declining his final meal, and in prayer. Mormon Bishop Heber Gertz said, it's unbelievable how calm and cool he is. Even the guards can't understand it. I've dealt with thousands of inmates in 33 years, and he's the most sorrowful, repentant, and remorseful man I've ever seen. Or he's just an actor. (laughs) Yeah. Who has come to the (laughs) last days of his life and realized this is it. Yeah. Or he's just a giant. What else do you do? Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess there's some people that are just angry or, I don't know. But, yeah, like... What else are you going to do? Like, you're going to die. Yeah. Like, you're going to die. 
doesn't matter how many times you read the Book of Mormon or how many times you didn't listen to swear words. Right. Like, you're not going like, to that's heaven. that's not saving your soul, dude. It's, <laughs> it's way too late for you. Yeah. And it's real, real easy to be super remorseful. Um, so, on June 10th, 1988, at 35 years old, Arthur Gary Bishop died by lethal injection. Um, the only real good thing that can come out of something so horrible as this was that his crimes did lead to the passage of more severe state penalties on, from what I read, it said infant kidnapping and child sex abuse. I don't think it was infant kidnapping because he did never kidnap infants. And when I tried to look it up, it did say that infant kidnapping was infants. Like it wasn't children. Cause I thought maybe like infant kidnapping would include like small children, yeah. but it, it said that like it was a four year old. Yeah. But it, from what I read, it was kind of off, but either way, there was more severe penalties um, put on child sex abuse and kidnapping of children. So well, that's good. Like the silver lining, at <laughs> right? Least. Yeah. A little, a little silver lining. Such an awful case, but this is a terrible case. Yeah. It was- I hate children stuff. And we started out the first <laughs> episode with child stuff. So yeah, it, it was, it was pretty bad, but I'd never heard of him, you know, lived in Utah my whole life and never never even heard of him so yeah i think it's like a good reminder to parents to like talk to your kids about stranger danger and no matter what they offer you do not go with anybody that you don't know and check the pedophile websites to see who your neighbors are and if there's any pedophiles in your neighborhood because most of them the urges never go away like you no. need to know who is around your kids. Yeah. I I mean I don't I don't care how offensive this may be to people, but like I don't think pedophiles get better. I don't think it's like a a re like a a re rehabilitable <laughs> yeah, re mental illness. Yeah, whatever the word is. <laughs> That's even a I word. don't think you can I don't think it can happen with pedophiles and so yeah, and I think it's a good reminder, too, just for parents to, like, you know, be more cognizant of, like, who your kids are hanging out with, who their parents are. Like, yeah. it's it's just scary. And for creepy. sure. It is. It's a scary world. And I think, I mean, I think most of us have gotten way better since the 80s, but. For sure. Just a, just a good reminder. <laughs> right? You know, go talk to your kids. <laughs> yeah. So um, that was that was the first case. I hope you guys enjoyed right. it that was a good case right good job um, be kind to us this is our first episode so you know things yeah. may not be smooth or or wonderful just yet or but. if you hear some background noises we're trying to work out all the kinks <laughs> so be kind but yeah give us a you know give us more than one episode try so yeah the next around, episode subscribe. is not kids <laughs> no no I, it's it's teenagers well <laughs> so you but, know but they're over 18 there we go yeah so subscribe stick around um and please follow us on facebook and instagram at sinners among saints podcast and send us an email at sinners among saints podcast at gmail.com thank you so much for listening we really truly appreciate every one of you And if you would please review us, share us with any of your friends, um, just get the word out there. We would really, really appreciate it. And we hope to see you here again next week. Bye.